Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host, and we are very pleased to welcome you to our program. The Hill Country Institute is committed to equipping and encouraging the body of Christ to engage people and culture with the heart and mind of Christ. We work through conferences, radio programs and podcasts, and online resources. To learn more about Hill Country Institute, please visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We also ask you to consider supporting the ministry of Hill Country Institute through online donations so we can continue these programs. This is Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host, and I'm absolutely delighted today to have Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross has been exploring the intersection of faith and science for um, his adult life and has uh, a lot of interesting thought and important considerations for us. So, Dr. Ross, thank you for being with us. We have been talking about faith and science in general and a bit about old earth creationism and other views. I'd like to find out more about the distinctives of your testable model. You wrote a book several years ago uh, entitled Creation is Science, a Testable Model Approach to End the Creation Evolution Wars. Would you tell us about the basis for that model and how it stands up with both biblical understanding and scientific inquiry? Yeah, what I wrote in Creation is Science, and in a book I wrote three years after that, More Than a Theory, was looking at half a dozen different models of creation evolution, basically pointing out what those models claim and then what kind of predictions would flow out of those models and then testing how well their predictions have panned out. That's why I wrote two books separated by three years, because in Creationist Science, I laid out predictions from each of the six models. Three years later, it was like a little test. Okay, how well are these predictions panned out? And I purposely tried to pick pick predictions that are relatively short-range possibilities of being discovered by future scientific research. So basically showing people how science works. Science works best in an atmosphere of competing models. In fact, that's what we scientists do, is we try to develop new models to challenge the current reigning paradigm. And then we do our research, our experiments, our observations. We develop theories in order to test one model against the other, see which one offers the most comprehensive explanation of the record of nature and which one is the most successful in resolving anomalies that show up on all models and which one's the most successful in making predictions of future scientific discoveries. My, my image of that is a, a boxing toy that a kid would have, and you hit it and it bounces back. And so the other scientists are punching your model, and as long as it keeps bouncing back, then you have a, you have a good model, don't you? You got a good model. Yeah. And by the way, I was arguing in both books that's also the way good theology should be done. Mm. I mean, we may be looking at a text, and there might be four or five different ways of interpreting the text. Mm-hmm. We can put that to the test. Yeah. Another reason why I think God gave us 66 books is so that, say, we can develop an interpretation in Romans. Well, how does this square with what we read in the book of Hebrews? Mm-hmm. And so this is a way we can fine-tune our theology and explains why we're still employing research theologians. We don't know everything there is to know about the book of Scripture. And we certainly don't know everything we need to know about the book of uh, nature. Sure. And so God is, by the way, I see this in Scripture too. Mm-hmm. We are commanded to study the law, to study the prophets, mm-hmm. to study the gospels. We're all commanded to be theologians, but we're also all commanded to be scientists. So like what I tell people in my church, if you're not a professional theologian, you're not off the hook. We're all commanded to be involved in the enterprise of theological research. Yeah. And if you're not a scientist, you're not off the hook. You're commanded to research and study the book of nature. 
But for example, one book I wrote, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, I make the point that people today with PhDs in science in many respects are less educated about science than people lived 4,000 years ago. Because one of the problems of modern society, we're cut off from the stars. I mean, where I live in the Los Angeles area, we look up at the sky, you know, Mm -hmm. we're doing well if we see 100 stars. But people living 4,000 years ago, when they looked up at the sky, they saw seven or 8,000 stars. Mm -hmm. They could see the Milky Way. And they received a sense of awe from seeing that. Also, we see Job saying, look to the beasts of the field, they'll instruct you. Look to the birds of the air, they will teach you. Well, we don't have that much contact with wild beasts and wild birds, mm-hmm. especially if you live in a big city. Yeah. And the thing I've noticed in all the public debates I've done with atheists, these atheists almost always are people who live in big metropolitan cities where they're cut off from contact with these birds and these beasts of the field Job told us to look to. Yeah, there's, there's almost a sterility, if you will, about an antiseptic life with a lot of concrete cut off from God's deeper nature. That's true, and what yeah. I discovered in personally going out of the wilds of Canada, mm-hmm. that when you get close to these wild birds and wild mammals, we're not only learning about biology, we're learning theology. Mm. That's what Job tells us, is that what we notice about these birds and mammals, they've been designed to serve and please us human beings. And so when you run into contact with these wild animals that have never been abused by human beings, you observe they want to come to us. They're drawn to us. They want to serve and please us. They want a relationship with us. Mm. Well, likewise, if it wasn't for our sin and our abuse, we humans would be drawn to reach out to a higher being. As these birds and mammals are motivated to relate to a higher species, God designed us to relate to him. Mm -hmm. And so that's just one example of how these birds and mammals teach us lessons about ourselves, lessons about God, and how we can come into a relationship with God. Yeah. Well, in your, in your model, you, you have to account for beginnings. Yes. How, how, how does your model account for the beginnings of the universe? Well, a hundred years ago, astronomers thought that the universe was eternal. Mm-hmm. We now Steady know. Steady state, whatever term. Well, even the Newtonian use. model was based mm-hmm. on the idea that it was eternal. It was a discovery of relativity, which first alerted us maybe the universe is not infinite in time. And so we began to do measurements, and we were able to demonstrate that Einstein's model of an expanding universe indeed was correct, mm-hmm. and it pointed back to a beginning. Moreover, we began to develop theorems based on general relativity, what are called the space-time theorems, mm-hmm. which basically prove not only is there a beginning to the universe, there's a beginning to space and time. And that's where the Bible stands alone with respect to other holy books. The other holy books speak about God creating within space and time that eternally exists. The Bible tells us space and time don't exist until God creates the universe. And so this is one discovery in modern astrophysics that uniquely establishes the existence of the God of the Bible. But you can extend that to the origin of life, uh, the origin of uh, the what I would call the nephesh animals. Because mm-hmm. when you read Genesis 1, it speaks about three separate origins of life. The origin of life that's purely physical, the origin of life that's both physical and soulish, and one and only one species that's physical, soulish, and spiritual. So three separate origin events. 
and science has now advanced where we can establish the reality of those three origins and establish that neither one of them has a natural explanation. They must be supernatural events. So, for example, when people ask me, can you, in broad stroke, tell me what are the most potent scientific evidences for the truth of the Christian faith, Mm -hmm. the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the origin of the soulish animals, and then the design of the universe and the solar system that makes possible the existence of life. Whenever I've run into atheists that have not had any contact with Christianity and have not read the Bible and have become Christians, they consistently name those five evidences as those that were crucial to them coming to faith in Christ. And it was certainly true in my case. So that was part of your conversion. That was part of my conversion as well, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Well, even today, uh, uh, a non-theist, whether Christian or not, uh, sees the uniqueness in books like the Rare Planet and others. Right. You know, there's there's a, an understanding that there's all these things that have to come together for us to have life, and uh, they have to be just so. And your model, how does your model deal with the Well, there are the about just-so-ness? 50 books that you can yeah. get in a secular bookstore that talk mm-hmm. about what's called the anthropic principle. Mm-hmm. That we measure the universe, we see overwhelming evidence that has been fine-tuned design to make possible the existence of life. Mm-hmm. Typically, though, that's where those books stop. And these are books that are written by people who are not believers. Mm-hmm. But they can't deny the overwhelming evidence for this fine-tuning design. Somehow it happened It's t- right. to be this fine-tuned. Yeah. But they keep it at the level of the universe. Mm-hmm. What we've done at Reasons to Believe is say, okay, we see that level of fine-tuning design at the level of the universe as a whole, and this is the handiwork of the creator God of the Bible, we're going to see it at all spatial scales. So we say, what do we see if we just look at galaxy clusters? Well, what we realize is we're living in a highly fine-tuned cluster of galaxies, the local group. Well, what about our Milky Way galaxy? Over 200 features of our Milky Way galaxy are fine-tuned designed to make life possible in our galaxy. Oh, well, what about our planetary system? Well, we now know that there's about 2,200 planets outside the solar system. What we discovered is none of them are like any of the eight planets in our solar system. And it's that discovery that's helped us realize all eight planets play a crucial role in making advanced life possible here on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm showing you is that no matter what Mm -hmm. size scale you look at, all the way down to fundamental particles, we see this consistent, overwhelming evidence for fine-tuning design to make life possible. The other thing we notice is if you target human beings, say as opposed to bacteria, the fine-tuning design is exponentially greater for humans than it is for bacteria. Mm. And all this would be consistent with what the Bible teaches about God being the author of the universe, our solar system, and all life. Well, if you go back to the Big Bang... The the very beginning right. of of this universe as we know it, there there were conditions that had to be met, or it would have come back in on itself, or it would have just kept expanding. And it's just so in the amount of energy and the amount of force that happened. How how does that fit in in the sense of your understanding of of scripture? Well, it's one of the first fine tuning evidences was recognized all the way back to 1961. In fact, it was an atheist scientist who pointed this out, uh, Robert Dickey. He said, when we look at the expansion of the universe, if we were to change it by one part in 10 to the 55th power, there'd be no possibility for life. 
Well, now we know that the fine-tuning is orders of magnitude greater, that the expansion of the universe is governed by matter, mass, and gravity, also governed by dark energy. And here's what Robert Dickey was getting at. If you expand the universe too quickly from the cosmic creation event, gravity cannot collect any of the cosmic gas to make stars. If you don't have stars and planets, you have no possibility for life. On the other hand, if you expand it too slowly from the cosmic creation event, gravity will collect all that gas and compress it into nothing but black holes and neutron stars. And once again, life is impossible. So in order to get the stars and planets at the right time, in the right place, in the universe, for light to be possible, it must be fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 55th power. But to get it fine-tuned to that degree, you have to fine-tune dark energy to one part in 10 to the 122nd place of the uh, index power, and the mass density, uh, likewise, must be extraordinarily fine-tuned. You know, dark energy and dark matter are, are terms that come up a lot, and, and I right. think for most of us, the understanding is a little dark. So uh, right. tell us a little bit about dark matter and dark energy, because that fits so much into what you're well, explaining. Late yeah. people think the universe is dominated by the bodies that give forth light. Mm-hmm. The truth is that adds up to only 0.27%. Mm-hmm. So take all the stars, galaxies, uh, planets, that's just 0.27%. The universe is dominated by the dark stuff. Ordinary dark matter, exotic dark matter, and dark energy. But it must be dominated exactly those levels if you're ever going to get life. Uh, so yeah. the matter in the universe acts as a break on the cosmic expansion. Uh, because, you know, two massive bodies attract one another. So mm-hmm. the more mass you got, the more attractiveness you've got. And that's going to pull back the expansion of the universe. Dark energy is the energy embedded in the space surface of the universe. And it works so that as that space surface gets bigger and bigger, as the universe expands, it becomes progressively more and more potent in its capacity to accelerate the expansion of the universe. And how we astronomers discovered it is by measuring the past expansion rates of the universe and realizing for the first half of the history of the universe the expansion rate was slowing down, but for the last half, it's speeding up. Well, notice that gravity is most powerful in slowing down the expansion of the universe when the bodies are close together, which would be the case right after the cosmic creation event, because the universe hasn't expanded that much. Mm -hmm. But when the universe becomes older and older, the space surface gets bigger and bigger, gravity becomes weaker and weaker, and its capacity to slow down the cosmic expansion, dark energy, conversely, becomes more and more powerful. So yeah, for the last half of the history of the universe, the expansion rate has been accelerating, and the acceleration gets greater and greater as time goes by. So right now, the universe's surface is expanding at just under the velocity of light. And then not so, you know, in the the future, it's going to be expanding at more than the velocity of light. And literally, every year that goes by, the universe expands at a faster rate. That's that's fascinating. So within within this universe expanding, the beginning, how how does your model account for the formation of Earth? I mean, we we know some of the basic science, but Earth is in a uh, different day, a different way of being within this overall thirteen billion years of the Earth of the right. universe. I mean, well. You know. 
As the universe expands, uh, after about a half billion years goes by, you get the first stars. And those first stars are composed of nothing but hydrogen and helium. Mm -hmm. But when they burn and explode, uh, they make some of the heavier elements. And that leads to another generation of stars. So when those generations uh, you know, burn up, uh, they expel more heavy elements into the interstellar medium. So our sun is a third generation star. And so it has a significant quantity of these elements heavier than uh, helium. And yeah. uh, that enables planets like the Earth to form, because our planet is a very dense planet. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to form you know, late in the history of the universe. Moreover, we now know is that planet Earth formed when the universe had its maximum abundance of uranium and thorium. So uranium and thorium is made in the furnaces of stars, but uranium and thorium decay, they're radiometric decay uh, elements. And so when the universe is aggressively forming stars, the uranium and thorium abundance goes up. But when the universe stops being so aggressive and forming stars like it is now, the uranium and thorium abundance goes down. So we now know Earth formed at the very peak of the abundance of uranium and thorium. And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't have a planet with oceans and continents on its surface. Because what generated the continents was the decay of uranium and thorium. And as it says in the Bible, on creation day three, uh, God formed the continents. And without that balance between oceans and continents on its surface, you couldn't recycle the nutrients that are crucial to make advanced life possible. Mm -hmm. So we praise God for the fact that we live on the most uranium and thorium rich body in the universe. So in a, in a sense, one, one answer to the question of why so long is that it was just setting up the planet Earth for life. Well, there's another factor there. Yeah, that's a simple, that was, that was meant to Yeah, that's simple, simple yeah. Yeah. but then leads to another question. Mm-hmm. Couldn't God have done it with different laws of physics and yeah. done it much more rapidly? Why take all these billions of years to set things up? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question, but there's other reasons why God chooses the laws of physics that he does. So given that he wanted a universe with gravity, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, it's going to take that kind of time. If you use different laws of physics, it wouldn't take that kind of time. But the reason why God chose those laws of physics, he intended to use them as tools to quickly eliminate evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. So often what I share with Christians, you can have it either way. You can have God take billions of years to set everything up for human beings and just take thousands of years to eliminate evil and suffering, or we could have God set it up in just thousands of years and take billions of years to eliminate evil and suffering. Which would you rather God do? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in, the, in that context, then, how does your model account for the origins of life? Well, the origin of life is where I think you get one of the more compelling arguments that there's got to be a supernatural, superintelligent creator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been attending origin of life research conferences and they're unlike any other kind of science conference. <laughs> Everyone you attend, the mood is more depressing than the previous meeting. <laughs> and the problem is these meetings are attended by people who are not theists, trying to work out the origin of life without giving God the credit. Mm -hmm. And what they're discovering is it's getting more and more difficult as time goes by. And it's such that right now we know the primordial Earth had no prebiotics. Mm. If you have no prebiotics, you have no naturalistically possible model for the origin of life. 
Every naturalistic model needs building blocks. Earth didn't even have the building blocks. Mm -hmm. And the reason we know that is that we can look at the isotopes of carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur and determine whether the molecules based on these elements are the products of post-biotic decay or the products of prebiotic assembly. We only see the evidence for postbiotics, not for prebiotics. Earth never had a prebiotic soup, and we also physically know why. If there's oxygen in the early Earth's environment, that kills prebiotic chemistry. But if you don't have oxygen, there's nothing to stop ultraviolet radiation streaming in from the sun, and that ultraviolet radiation, just like oxygen, kills prebiotic chemistry. So if you got oxygen, it can't happen. If you don't have oxygen, it can't happen. It's, uh, it's a conundrum then, isn't it? Well, either yeah. way you lose yeah. from a naturalistic <laughs> perspective. Sure. Well, in, in the sense of uh, your model, how do you consider the biblical flood? Well, uh, I, we believe in a flood that's universal to humanity. The world of the ungodly was flooded, as it says in Second uh, uh, Peter chapter 2. Second mm-hmm. Peter 3, cosmos tote, the world at the time the event took place. Now, if Paul meant the entire planet, he would have used the word cosmos with no qualifying adjectives. But every time he addresses it, there's a qualifying adjective. So our model is the entire world of ungodly human beings was flooded, including the world of all their soulish animals. When it talks about the animals being wiped out by the flood in Genesis 6 through 8, it's referring to the basar. These are the soulish animals that are in relationship with human beings. And the Levitical law tells us it's those animals that can be damaged by human sin. And uh, only those animals are damaged by human sin. Mm -hmm. If I sin in front of a cockroach, it doesn't affect the behavior of the cockroach. But Mm -hmm. if I'm mean towards my pet dog or my cow, it's going to change the behavior of the cow. Mm -hmm. Which basically explains why God said all of humanity must be wiped out and all the animals, the nephesh animals, the soulish animals associated with them, likewise must be wiped out. But we've got evidence from the biblical text itself that humanity was not yet global. And given that humanity was not yet global, there's no need to inundate the entire planet to wipe out all of humanity and all the birds and mammals associated with humanity. Yeah. Now, Our model is a lot bigger than the traditional old Earth creationist model because we put the flood during the last ice age. And during the last ice age, virtually all of the Persian Gulf was dry ground. Red Sea was mostly dry ground. And so our flood model is about four times more extensive than the traditional old Earth creationist model where it's only Mesopotamia that's filled up with water. Mm -hmm. No, we fill up the whole Persian Gulf, all of Mesopotamia, large chunks of Persia and Arabia and regions beyond. But we think that's more than sufficient to wipe out all of humanity and all the birds and mammals associated with them. And by the way, it's not just Second Peter and uh, Genesis that speak about the flood. Five times it's addressed in Psalms, Proverbs, and uh, Job. And in those texts, they consistently speak about what God did to set up the continents, and what you see in Psalm 104, for example, is that, you know, it talks about creation day three, where God sets up these continental land masses. That's verses uh, seven and eight. 
Verse 9, never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. Mm. That's repeated five times in uh, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. So those are the explicit passages that the flood of Genesis could not be global in extent. Nevertheless, it's not just a portion of humanity, like many of my friends or theistic evolutionists teach. No, it's all of humanity and all the birds and mammals associated with them. But in that case, we don't see the ark as having polar bears on it. Given that humans had no contact with polar bears, they sure. wouldn't be damaged by human sin. So that answers the question of biodiversity and geodiversity of animals. Well, he was yeah. told to take a pair of every basar creature on board the ark. Mm-hmm. So that meant all the birds and mammals uh, that were in relationship with human beings, are, you know, at least one pair, some cases seven pairs, are taken on board the ark. Yeah. We're probably talking a few thousand uh, pairs of animals, and so the ark is more than large enough to house those animals and the food and water they would need for, say, a year and a half period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one more question, and then we'll close. And this is this. It's not going to have time to fully develop, but creation awaits redemption, the fourth stage. Creation, fall, redemption, but ultimately there's a there's a level of redemption um, that, that, that we'll see, a final transformation. How does, how does your model anticipate this final transformation that will come in the end? Well, that's a good question because uh, as we read the Bible, God's works of redemption predate his works of creation. And everything that God creates is in the context of redemption. Every animal, every plant, every bacterium, every star plays a role in making possible the redemption of the uncountable number of human beings God wants to bring into a salvation relationship with him. And when that happens, the universe will have fulfilled its purpose. I mean, one book I wrote, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, makes the point the universe is designed to eliminate evil and suffering. But when that happens, there's no longer a need for the universe. Mm. And God's going to replace this universe with a brand new creation. You know, as I read Revelation 21 and 22, it's a creation with radically different laws of physics and radically different dimensions. I don't think it's going to be length, width, height, and time anymore. It's going to be radically different dimensions, radically different laws of physics, because we no longer need to have these laws that deal with evil and suffering. They don't exist anymore. And actually, God's going to release redeemed humanity into a state where relationships will be geometric, not just linear. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're having a linear relationship. Sure. We're cutting off every other human being. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the way it's got to be, given that we're constrained in space and time the way, they, way we are. Yeah. But when we're no longer having to worry about evil and suffering— God, I believe, is going to enable us to have intimate, one-on-one type conversations with billions of angels and humans and God himself simultaneously. That's a staggering view. It's a staggering view, and that's only a piece of the wonders of what the new creation uh, reveals. As Paul says, no one can think or imagine how great and wonderful it will be. Mm -hmm. But it's the same Apostle Paul who says, every day, spend some time doing your best to imagine how great and wonderful it be, because that will encourage your right, your walk uh, of righteousness. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Dr. Hugh Ross, that's probably a good good spot to end because it gives us a view of what is to come and our hope for the future. So thank you. Thank you so much for all that you've shared. If someone wants to find out more about Reasons to Believe, what's your website? Reasons.org. Okay. And then if you want to read uh, Dr. Ross's books, they're available on Amazon. They're available through Reasons.org, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, and, uh, and there's some good reads. Thank you for joining us for Hill Country Institute Live. We invite you to visit our website for podcasts of the radio programs, along with videos of speakers at our past conferences, including Andy Crouch, Hugh Ross, Alistair McGrath, Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, and more. Your donations also help this program and ministry to continue. You can donate through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, or you can call us at 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993 and hillcountryinstitute.org. Thank you again for being with us.